Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, a humble and thankful people. By the blood of your Son, Jesus, we are able to approach your throne of grace and mercy. Lord, we know that you hear our prayers and our petitions, Lord. We know that you make all things perfect by your Spirit. Lord, I pray that this morning your word would go forth. It would have its full effect. It would accomplish that which you purpose for it, Lord, whether it is to sanctify and edify your saints, to save the lost, Lord. Uh, we know that in all things, Lord, you work it for your glory and our good. We thank you for this time that we're able to gather together to learn and to glean from your holy inspired word. Lord, we thank you for special revelation that has been imparted to us by your spirit. We thank you for the righteousness of Christ that you have imputed to us, Lord, and for removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. We pray that you would bless this time, Lord, and use it for your glory. Prepare our hearts to receive now your word. In your son's name, amen. The great need of every Christian worker is to know God. That simple and often repeated statement by Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, was more than a cliche. It constituted the foundation and fabric of his life. But God taught him that truth over many years. Our story begins at 21 Cheapside in the English village of Barnsley. It was the shop and home of the local chemist or pharmacist, James Taylor. On the 21st of May, 1832, a son was born to James and his wife, Amelia. They named him Hudson and devoted him to God. We are here in Barnsley at the Salem Wesleyan Reformed Church, where Hudson Taylor and his parents were members, and where he preached on those rare occasions when he returned from China. James and Amelia Taylor taught Hudson and his siblings that God is faithful, that the Bible can be applied to daily life, and that all matters, large or small, are to be brought to him in prayer. Each evening, James would pray with his children, never forgetting to plead with God for the souls in China. God's answer to those daily prayers would one day involve young Hudson Taylor. In fact, when Hudson Taylor died 73 years later, the China Inland Mission, a mission which he founded, was made up of 825 missionaries living in all 18 provinces of China, with more than 300 mission stations, 500 local Chinese co-workers, and 25,000 converts. 
How that came to be is what we're here to discuss. Let's back up to when Hudson was 15 years old. Not yet a Christian, he took a position in a bank where he was adversely influenced by ungodly co-workers. Although he attempted to maintain an outward religion, his heart was miserable and yearned for other things. His family could sense the danger he was in, and his younger sister Amelia resolved to pray for him three times a day until he was truly converted. One day when his mother was away, Hudson walked into his father's library and picked up a gospel tract. He was struck by the phrase, the finished work of Christ. He wondered, if the work is finished and the debt is paid, what is there left for me to do? He realized the answer to this question was to fall down on his knees, embrace this Savior, and live for him. Now, at this same time, his mother was miles away with friends. She was burdened to pray for her son. She got up from the dinner table, shut herself in a room, and pleaded with God for Hudson's conversion, determining not to leave until her prayers were answered. She prayed for hours until her prayer turned to praise because she was convinced that her request had been granted. Now that Hudson Taylor had been brought to know God through the gospel, he was convinced that he was saved to serve. He was equally sure that he was intended for China. The spiritual darkness of China was constantly on his mind. So he set himself to study Latin, Greek, theology, medicine, and Chinese. He even created his own Chinese dictionary at the age of 17 by comparing a Chinese New Testament with his English Bible. We are in Hull, England, about 70 miles east of Barnsley, to talk about his preparation for the mission field. I'm actually standing in the scenic Queen's Gardens in the city of Hull, but this was not the kind of place that Hudson chose to live near. He left home at the age of 19 and moved to Kingston Square in order to receive a rudimentary education in medicine through an apprenticeship to Robert Hardy. As an apprentice, he lived with Mr. Hardy and it became a home away from home for young Hudson Taylor. However, he was convinced that before he left for China, he needed to learn how to pour out his life for others and to depend upon God alone for all he needed. So he moved to a poor area of the city called Drainside and rented a cottage from a Mrs. Finch. Life there was difficult. Young Taylor experienced poverty, loneliness, and continual contact with hardship and suffering. But Hudson was happy. He was being taught by God how to be a missionary. One example we have is when he felt that he should give his last cent to a dying woman's family, even though he had many pressing needs of his own. He did so, trusting God. As Hudson was faithful in little matters such as this, he found God's faithfulness to far surpass his own. The next day's mail brought him four times the amount of money he had given away. Later he wrote, let us cast all our burdens, and they are many and weighty, upon our omnipotent, all-wise, loving Father. They are but feathers to Him. Belonging to a perfect Heavenly Father, Hudson left all in God's hands, the timing of his journey to China, his finances, the place he would live, the work he would undertake. He lived by his own advice. He said, avoid seeking to be head, be the servant and child in all things, Look for guidance and commit your way unto the Lord. He asserted that it was God's place to direct, 
and his to obey. In 1853, without any formal training in theology or missions, 21-year-old Hudson Taylor landed on the shores of China. He soon found himself feeling weary, disillusioned, and unqualified. Yet, as he felt the depths of his own inability, he was discovering the all-surpassing faithfulness of God. He wrote, Only as everything fails us and we fail ourselves do we begin to draw upon God's abiding strength. He found God to be his strength as he devoted endless hours to studying Chinese and practicing medicine. In the first two years, he made 10 evangelistic journeys beyond the relative safety of Shanghai. Desiring to remove all hindrances to the gospel, Taylor decided to adopt a Chinese lifestyle that included Chinese clothing and hairstyle. He even dyed his blonde curls black. This allowed him to come into closer contact with the Chinese people. Hudson also disagreed with the popular policy of borrowing money to do the Lord's work. This led him to resign from the missionary agency which supplied his salary. He was now in China, independent, with no one but God to depend upon. But as he would often say to younger missionaries, depend upon it. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supplies. Taylor's principles were unique in his day, and they were not always appreciated by the other missionaries. In the course of his evangelistic journeys, Hudson Taylor met and grew to love Maria Dyer, the orphan daughter of a missionary, and on January 20th, 1858, they married. Together they had eight children. Four lived to become missionaries in the China Inland Mission. Mrs. Taylor was a great encouragement to him in her quiet strength and submission to God's will. Together, they were happy in the father's love. Shortly after the birth of their first child, the Taylors had to return to England. Hudson had contracted hepatitis and was dangerously ill. As you approach the study of Hudson Taylor's God this week, I want to leave you with one of his favorite statements. He said, There is a living God. He has spoken in the Bible. He means what he says and will do all he has promised. You've had an opportunity this week to study the infinity of God or the fact that God alone can never be measured or limited in any of his perfections. Of course, it's only a beginning, whether you're a young believer or an older believer. No matter how long you've been studying this topic, we're only in the shallows of a boundless ocean of majesty. God possesses a plenitude, we could say, a fullness that overflows the edges of all creation and frustrates our every effort at definition. Now, when we talk about the infinity of God, we have to connect it with the other attributes. Every attribute of God is infinite, and every attribute of God is immeasurable, incomprehensible, incalculable, effortlessly. It's not that God maintains his infinity. Infinity is what God is. You've also been looking at the infinity of God in connection with the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the words of John, the disciple and early eyewitness of this fullness? 
John says in the first chapter of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And listen how he describes the glory. Full of grace and truth. And of his fullness, John says, we have all received. And grace upon grace. Later, Paul writes a letter to the Colossian church. And in the first chapter, he says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, in Christ. In the second chapter, he says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. That is, actually, not like the temple, not symbolically, but substantially. And in him, Paul says, you have been made complete or full. Well, today we're going to lean on Paul again. And we're going to listen to a prayer that he prayed in prison a prayer that he wrote to the Ephesian Christians. And we want to see what Paul says about how a Christian lives on the fullness of God. But before we actually examine the prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, there are some preliminary issues that we need to handle. And the first is this. In Ephesians, we have a very structured letter. It's simple. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is primarily discussing Christian doctrine, what we must believe. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, he is primarily dealing with Christian duty, how we are to live. And that's the biblical order. And there's no way to reverse those. You can't skip doctrine and by willpower move yourself into the camp of obedience. It, it can't be sustained. Right thinking precedes right living. Truth, studied, understood, applied, leads to obedience. But I believe every Christian could say that by our own sad experience, we know that right doctrine doesn't automatically lead to right living because there is another element in the book of Ephesians. It is this issue of God applying spiritually to the soul of the believer, the great truths that have been explained so that there is a daily kind of experiential understanding of these things. So, in chapter 1, he gives a great deal of truth about what Christ has done for us. And then at the end of the chapter, Paul prays that God would basically teach the believers in such a way that they would have an experiential, day-to-day -day knowledge of the truths he's just explained. Again, at the end of chapter 3, after chapter 2 gives us a great deal of doctrine, chapter 3, there's a, there's a small parenthetical section where Paul explains his own part in the ministry. But at the end of that chapter, he returns to this issue of doctrine and he prays again that God would, by the Holy Spirit, strengthen believers so that they might come to a real awareness of these truths in daily living. So truth acquired, then moved from the head to the heart. And as the Puritan John Flavel said, it's a very short step from the heart to the life. Now, the second preliminary issue, the prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians is not a private prayer. It's a prayer for all Christians. Why does God have Paul record this prayer in a way 
that for the last 2,000 years, every Christian can read it. And the reason is this, the prayer is for all believers. The things that Paul pleads for with regard to the Ephesian Christians are things that we ought to plead for with regard to our souls. This prayer is not limited to the first century. It's not limited to Ephesus. It's not limited to Paul. It's for all Christians, all times, in all circumstances. Third preliminary issue. Nothing here that Paul prays for is extra. Now, Paul's going to ask for some wonderful things for these Christians. But you mustn't think that that this is dessert, that it's extra. This is the meat and potatoes of Christianity. None of this is optional. These things are essential. And even though they're wonderful and they're hard to imagine, they're fundamental. Fourth issue. The timing of Paul's prayer is very encouraging. If Paul wrote this prayer when life was easy, if he wrote it when Christianity was making him comfortable and he was surrounded with honors, well, we would read it in one way, but actually Paul is in prison. He's made certain boasts about the deity of Christ. He's described the bigness of Jesus of Nazareth. He's both man and God. He is the Messiah. And for boasting in Christ, Paul's been put into prison and he's lost everything. Now, what will he say about Christ having lost everything? And what Paul says in the Colossian letter, in the Ephesian letter, written at the same time, is basically this. There is all the fullness of God in this man, Christ Jesus. And as the Son of God, he makes us full. There's a fullness even for Paul in prison. If you think that the fullness that Paul experienced when he wrote Ephesians was based on Paul's devotional life. Well, we say, well, of course Paul is full. Paul's that kind of a Christian. And the quality of his devotional walk with the Lord is the reason. But that's not the reason. It's the fact that Paul belonged to the infinite Savior. Well, let's look at that God now. Paul's prayer is found in verses 14 to the end of the chapter. And the first thing that he asks is that God would give them strength in order to experience that kind of fullness. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And then he gives his request that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now, we all know, if we're Christians, that we came to Christ not because we were spiritually strong people. We came to Christ because we were weak. And when we grow as Christians, we are not becoming self-sufficient, strong, and capable Christians as we progress. Christian progress is not up. It's down. We are growing in humility. We are becoming more aware of how needy we've always been and more aware of how sufficient Christ really is. And so there's this wonderful expanse that's growing in our mind. I am much more needy than I ever imagined, and he is infinitely full for people like me. It's a life of ever-increasing dependence on an infinite Savior. Whatever Paul is pleading with God for the Ephesian Christians, in order for them to receive it, it's going to require that God himself, by the Spirit, strengthens them spiritually to do so. Now, we know it's the Holy Spirit's work, 
and we are aware of things that the Holy Spirit must do in us as Christians. We could think of it in this way. The Father has planned the great work of our rescue. The Son has purchased our rescue by his life and death. And the Holy Spirit has been sent to apply the rescue. So everything that is in the heart of God for the believer, everything that Christ has purchased is now in the hands of the Spirit to bring to bear on your life. The Spirit is needed for us to understand the teachings of Christ. The Spirit is needed if we're to work outward the salvation that Christ has put within. The Spirit is needed to put sin to death daily. The Spirit is needed for us even to know how to pray correctly. So to keep your mind focused, to keep your heart lively, to keep your will resolute, you need the work of the Spirit. If you're not convinced, Paul gives us some measures here of how much the Spirit will strengthen us. Now, Paul doesn't generally use philosophical terminology like infinity. We don't find Paul saying, you understand the infinity of God, don't you? He uses much more concrete terms. He says it this way, I pray that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened. So Paul's showing you the measure that God will use in enabling you to be strengthened. He will measure out the strength to be given to you according to the riches of his glory. That is, there is a magnitude to God's glory. There is this utmost of his infinite glory. And that's the measure that he's choosing to use to supply all that you need as a Christian to be strengthened. It's not your worth that's the measure. It's not even your need. Now, we have great need but it's not big enough. The measurement is the riches of his glory. Now, that's a lot of strength. So what's the purpose of that? In, in this prayer, what follows are three privileges the Christian receives through this work from an infinite God. And they're all marked by the little word that showing the purpose. Look at verse 17, 18, and 19 of Ephesians 3. Paul writes, so that, now this is the purpose of the strengthening, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, number one. Number two, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Number three, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You need the infinite strength of the Spirit working in you so that you can have these three things. First, so that you may experience the indwelling presence of Christ in an ever greater degree. Now, these were already Christians, and so there is already a union between the Savior and the sinner here. They are in Christ by the work of the Spirit. And he is in them. And if that's not true, then they're not Christians. So what Paul is praying for is something more than that. He is praying for an ongoing, a continuing and growing, increasing awareness of Christ living in them. Think of it. God has moved heaven and earth so that we might be brought from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light, so that we might be brought even into his family, adopted, so that we might even become 
his living temple so that God would live in us. But for this to become a part of your conscious experience, for it to affect the way you choose and think and desire, you're going to have to apprehend it, Paul says, by faith. And God is going to have to strengthen you. Now, there are two more purposes in verse 19. That you may comprehend this love of Christ and that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. And immediately we notice that we have two paradoxes, all right? Two apparent contradictions or two mysteries that we're faced with. And I, I am so encouraged when I come across these in Scripture because it's to be expected. We're talking about an infinite God, a being without measure, a being that overflows the edges of creation, a being that cannot be calculated or comprehended. What happens when the infinite God collides with, an, with a finite person? Well, we expect that we're going to run into a lot of mysteries, and Christianity is full of them. I think they're some of the most precious aspects of Scripture. It's like Christ takes us by the hand, and he's, he's bringing us up a mountain. And at each level, each stage of the climb, we look out over the valley, and we see a clearer and more beautiful picture of what he's done for us. But there are times where he takes us so high, we're in the cloud bank. And he describes things to us, but we would have to admit, it's pretty cloudy to me. And this is one of those passages. Two great paradoxes. Paul prays that baby Christians in Ephesus would be able to know something that's really beyond knowing. And that they would be able to be filled with an infinite fullness from God. So let's look at these. First, we need the limitless power of the Spirit of God working in us so that we would know a love that really is beyond knowing. Now, while we can never explain fully the love of God, that doesn't mean we can't experience it. And that's what Paul's praying for here. It's great to hear news of the indwelling of Christ in a believer, but look in the mirror. You're sinful. You're small. You're insignificant. You occupy such a small place on planet Earth. Your life is just a little breath and it's gone. How can God, infinite God, want to dwell in you? When we learn about the infinity of God, we must always at the same time be connecting it to this unimaginable grace. There is a love that comes through the work of Jesus Christ that is beyond calculation. No angel knows the measure of God's love for his people. No preacher can explain it. No theologian, no parent, no friend has ever been able to measure how much God loves those who are in Christ Jesus. There is actually only one person that does know the measure of that, and it's God. But Paul uses big words, the biggest words he can, to help us get some idea. So let's look at these. First, he says, I want you to be strengthened so that you can know experientially the breadth or the width of Christ's love. Think of it. It shocked the Jews when the Messiah came, and he did not come merely to rescue them, children of Abraham. But he also came to rescue the filthy, idol-worshipping people all around them. Not just Jews, but people from all nations, all classes of people, highly educated and refined to the rough, spiritual states of people, the idol-worshipper and the child of a believing 
home. The faithful, the atheist, the martyr, and the one that was putting the martyr to death. Think of the Apostle Paul. You cannot find one life on planet Earth in all the history of humanity that is wide of the mark of hope that there is in the love of Christ. Length, how far, how long does this love go? What's the length of it? Do you remember John 13? The final night of Christ with his disciples before his crucifixion. We read this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, how? To the end. Or Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You cannot imagine a Christian life that has lived so long, that has so often come to the mercy seat, that has pleaded for mercy, that has drawn on that account so frequently that the length of that Christian life is in some measure longer than the love of God. Think about the depth. Well, to really know the depth of God's love, you'd have to think of how how far sin has sunk us. You'd have to be able to measure the misery of mankind without God and without hope in this world. But we're not talking about the misery that we can see on our television sets or that we hear about. I'm talking about the kind of misery that comes when God withdraws all his kindness. The worst life on earth is still a life that is surrounded by what we call the common grace of God, that that God is loving his enemies. But imagine the depths of life apart from that. Imagine the eternal wrath of God and the sorrow of hell, not for a moment, but for endless ages. Charles Spurgeon said, hell is called the judgment to come because no matter how long it has lasted, it is still judgment to come. Not just for one person who has rejected Christ, but every soul that has rejected Christ forever and ever. If you could measure that, then you would come close to understanding what is the depth of his love. David, like every believer in Psalm 130, cried out, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. You cannot imagine a life that is sunk deeper in sin than the depths of God's love toward the repentant sinner in Christ. What about the height? Well, you would need to be able to go to heaven and have some kind of measuring tape for the dignity of your Savior. How high has Christ brought us? As high as he is. United to him, seated with him in the heavenlies. If you could go to Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, as you see all creation join, not only in worshiping the Father, but in the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And he comes and he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. He's given the scroll. The governance of all creation is in his hand and he breaks the scroll and he opens it up and he begins to lay out all that the father wishes to be done. And all creation is crying his praises. If you could measure it and you could see the believer there beside the savior made complete as beautiful as Christ, pure, conformed to his image, then then you could know something of the height There is no height that we can imagine that is as high as the love of God in Christ. Now, Paul gives us these measurements, but what does that have to do with living on the fullness of God? Well, I think one thing is obvious. 
the love of God understood and experienced, right? So not, we're not just dealing with concepts, but daily, daily experienced. It expands our understanding of this God. It makes room in our souls for him because it expels all other lovers. There's that constant tension in the Christian life. We belong to a new husband now, a new master. The old life was lived married to sin and self and death. Now we're married to Christ, Romans 7. The old me is dead, the new me is alive, and now I'm free to remarry. And I'm married to the Son of God. He's my Savior. I'm united to Him forever. But in this life, the old lovers still come around. And they kind of... They kind of crowd in the life if we're not careful. And they begin to occupy some of the small closets in the back of the house. And sometimes we labor to remove them. God, I want every area of the soul handed over to you. But they're not so easily ejected. When the soul is made aware by the Spirit's work within, when we are strengthened to understand experientially a love that we can't really explain, It is easy then to expel those other lovers and it makes room for Christ, for the fullness of God. You cannot add the fullness of God onto a Christian life that's crammed full of selfishness. But when the love is is made clear again and those old lovers run, all those rooms are now open and Christ comes through. Full, the reality of God understood, experienced, satisfies the Christian, spreads to every area of life, changes the way we live. Why? Well, you say, well, so that the Christian can have a great life, but that is actually not Paul's ultimate goal. That is a goal that leads to a greater goal. Fullness is wonderful, but that's not the end. Fullness is for the glory of the Savior. Listen to verse 20 and verse 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And that great statement comes right after the prayer that God would strengthen us to know Christ's indwelling, to know his love, to be filled up with his fullness so that he would be glorified. Now, this fullness, what kind of fullness? Well, it's not the fullness that God has in the sense that we're not going to become omnipotent. We're not going to become little gods. He won't share his all-presence, all-knowing, all-power. We can't have that. But he will share his moral beauty with us, like we see in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. The fruit of the Spirit the love, the joy, the peace, right? the holiness, as that permeates the Christian's life, not just because we're united and connected to Christ, but because there's a daily communion with Christ. And although we won't be infinite, it is the infinite God that is pouring over into our life, and our little cup is, is made full, and out of that fullness, we pour over onto other people. All for the honor of God. Now consider... Your fullness as a Christian today is intimately connected with God's reputation today. How will 
the next generation know that God is infinite. Well, we say, well, we'll give them a book on the infinitude of God. We'll give them the Bible and they can read it. Well, they could, but generally the unbeliever doesn't study the Bible. And if they read the Bible, they don't believe what it says. The unbeliever really doesn't have eyes for that. But an unbeliever can see this. Whether they understand what they're seeing or not, they see a common person just like them. Needy, flawed, full because of God. They know you. They know you're not perfect. But they know that you're satisfied. That you are constantly receiving from an invisible source that they reject. Think how much honor God receives when common Christians are made uncommonly full because God has strengthened them for it. Consider also, though, how much confusion there is when the church tells the world that God is infinitely big, infinitely full, but they look at us and we're running about like starving beggars. What does a starving beggar act like? Well, they're always frantically pursuing what they lack. But the Christian is at peace, full. I'm free to think about other people. God is supplying everything I need. Now, in this matter of fullness, for the glory of God, the preacher Charles Simeon in the 19th century said, we ought to be ambitious. Ambition is a virtue in this. We should never let any strength of God at work in our heart, anything less than all power, don't let it content you, he said. No presence but the actual dwelling of Christ in your heart should satisfy you. He warns his hearers in the 19th century, don't stop short of understanding the love of God in all its dimensions and don't be satisfied with anything less than the fullness that comes from an infinite God. In Psalm 81, God says to the people, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. We could, we could take that and... We can make it our prayer. God, I will open my mouth wide because of what you say in Ephesians. Because you're infinite, I will open my mouth wide and you must fill it. Now, a very simple test for us. Three questions. Is Christ all you have, Christian? I mean, all you really have, all what you have that can't ever be taken away from you. Is Christ all you have? Well, let's go to the next question. Is Christ all you need? Well, I have a lot of pleasant things, but really all I need is Christ. But can you say the third thing? Christ is all I want. Well, by the grace of God, Paul's prayer can be fulfilled in our life too, because our God is the same infinite God. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would look to us a needy people. And God, our needs seem beyond calculation to us, but they're not to you. But then there's your fullness. And we find it hard to believe that the things that Paul asks could be for every Christian. But we lay down our doubting minds and we worship you. You are the infinite Savior and you have provided for us in such astonishing ways. It is an amazing grace. God, don't let us rest satisfied to live with anything less than what Paul prayed for those Ephesian Christians. And do it, God, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. To say that God is infinite is to say that he is unbounded in any way. So 
This breaks down, in a sense, into other attributes. We might say that he is, he is immaterial, which is a way of saying he's infinite um, with regard to space. He is uncontained by space. We might say that he is eternal, which is saying that he is infinite with regard to time. He is uncontained by time. So the infinity of God is, uh, colloquially, is a way of saying he doesn't have any edges, if you like. We can't even really begin to fully comprehend what an eternal being must be like. Uh, and that's one area where atheists stumble because when you say God made the world, they say, okay, then who made God? Well, look, there's a problem with that sentence already because if someone made him, it's not God. God has no beginning, has no end. He is an eternal being. And let's face it, we can't comprehend that. It's beyond our three-dimensional view. It's, we just can't. However, it is revealed in Scripture in very clear terms. I mean, Psalm 90 very clearly says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so our task is that of accepting it. It's that of simply receiving it, that this is the God who is there. But for us to attempt to wrap our minds around the reality that God was in the beginning and God will be in the end, and he is simultaneously in both places at the same time, being a God who's outside of time, is quite difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But it ought to be a very encouraging truth regarding the characteristics of God, the attributes of God for the believer to realize that there's no moment in our past that God hasn't been there. There'll be no moment in our future that God will not be there. The truth that Christ promised us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, is true because God is eternal. Not only Will he be there? In one sense, he is there. And he'll walk us through whatever the path is that God has for us. He'll be right there with us as the eternal one who knows us well. He knows what we need well, very well, and he can accomplish all his good pleasure in and through us. When we then think about the work of Christ, actually the infinity of Christ becomes hugely important because the scriptures teach that Christ died for our sins. Um, and if he died for the sins of millions, billions of people, uh, some people have asked, well, how can the death of one man suffice to pay the, such a great price for sin for so many? And I think theologians have rightly answered that the explanation of that lies actually in his divine nature, which is infinite. And as Jonathan Edwards said, which I think is, is powerful and so important in understanding the Bible and understanding theology, only an infinite God can satisfy an infinite God. Being a believer in Jesus means that we are in Christ, united to him by faith. The fact that he's eternal means that we will be united to him, the altogether lovely one, forever and ever, eternally united to him to this glorious one who 
loved us and gave himself for us in order that we might, he might be our elder brother, in order that we might be sons and daughters of the Most High God. The, the infinite nature of God in all his attributes is, is part of what will cause us for all eternity to worship him. We'll worship him for his infinite grace because at that point we will appreciate what he has done for us a million times more than we do now. Right now we're totally blind. Well, we think we're seeing, but really we, we will see better when we enter into eternity. We will appreciate what is done for us in providence. Every moment uh, of the way, it will be amazing what we will appreciate about him. But even then, it's the fact that he is a, a sea without a shore, a sun without a sphere, and we will now be in his presence. Wow. <laughs> uh, let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for all that you have revealed to us in your, your word, Lord, that from everlasting to everlasting, you are our God, you are our King. The infinity and fullness of your being knows no end. It has no beginning, Lord, and that... In your infinitude, you have chosen to condescend, Lord, bodily in the form of Jesus. And Lord, we praise you for this, this truth of the hypostatic union, Lord, to reconcile being fully God and fully man in one person, Lord, that an infinite God can satisfy the demands of an infinite God, Lord, and that you have chosen to Place your grace and your mercy upon us, your redeemed. You are just so good and so amazing, Lord. There is no earthly comprehension that can categorize all that you are. So we just simply thank you. We thank you, Lord. We pray that we would be conformed further into your image, that we would resemble you, our creator. We would resemble Christ our Savior, that our life would reflect uh, just all of this goodness that you have imparted to us, Lord. We pray for this morning's service. We pray for the hearts and minds of your people. We pray for any who come in among us who do not know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them, Lord. We pray uh, that your word would go out. We pray for um, our pastors, that, Lord, as the word is preached today, you would do so with boldness and clarity and accuracy that your spirit would do a mighty work. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.